You know, brethren, prior to our life with Jesus Christ and God our Father, all of us were enmeshed in what we, were, we would call today leaven, because we are in the days of unleavened bread, and it's certainly appropriate to associate leaven with sin. In that context, I think it's very clear that we all are, or were, that is, we were enmeshed in the leaven of our lives. It was a time when, you know what, we ourselves, it was all about us. You know, it was about what I wanted to buy. It was about where I wanted to go. It, it was about what I wanted to watch or what I wanted to participate in. It was all about me. I, you know, and if you didn't like me for what I was, well, then lump it. Like it or lump it because I am what I am and uh, I'm going to be who I am. And, uh, you know, whatever I am, you either, you know, like it or leave. There's the door. And I'll do the same with you too because guess what? I'm the best that it is, you know. And a lot, a lot of people have those kinds of arrogant approaches or on the, other, on the other side of the coin, they suffer from a lot of insecurities and emotional uh, insecurities and consequently kind of fade into the background and, you know, are kind of bullied around uh, throughout their lives. But the bottom line is a lot of us were enmeshed in sin and in, of course, the leaven that surrounds us throughout this life that we call human, human existence. Over here in the book of Galatians, it kind of illustrates that in a very simple form, nevertheless very appropriately describing items that we, when we were walking after the flesh, were sometimes involved with. Now the works of the flesh, verse 19, Galatians chapter 5, are manifest. These are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, Witchcraft, which comes from a Greek word that uh, means medication, drugs, uh, things along the lines of sorcery and, and, and magic, and things along the uh, lines of alternating or al al uh, altering your mental capacity and your feelings and emotions. You need to be careful. I'm not telling you to get off your medication. I'm just saying that uh, Paul here lists a lot of that, and of course we can certainly connect that with illegal drugs as well as perhaps even certain addictions that occur through legal med uh, medications as we understand them to be for, in some cases, sadly, people that are in pain management programs. Hatred, Variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies and murders, drunkenness, revelings, such the like of which I tell you before, Paul's very clear, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We're all guilty of some of those things. I won't tell you which ones I'm guilty of, but we are all guilty of many of these things that we find right here. And if you do a word study on some of this, you will find that if you don't think you are guilty of some of these, well, then just figure out what the word variance is. You know, think about murder, not in the sense of literally murdering, but in hating somebody or literally, you know, looking at trying to be vengeful towards somebody, 
envies. You know, did you ever want to be somebody that you're not? Well, perhaps that has happened in your life at some point or had as much money as the other guy has or some class envy that we see so much of today throughout the world. Many people suffer from these things as they themselves go through life. Over here in the book of Romans, again, we're told by the Apostle Paul, writing to a different congregation, nevertheless, same theme here about this orientation of materialism, of this being fleshy-minded, of allowing our human nature essentially to overwhelm us. He says here in Romans 8, verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. And he's using this as a figure of speech to illustrate those people who are, for all intents and purposes, focused on the materialism, the materialistic. Uh, the secularism, the humanism of life itself. Those that are uh, pinpointed on that or targeting that for their life purpose and objective, well, then they do mind those things. And But they are not uh, after, but they that are after the Spirit, I'm sorry, verse 5, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Verse 6 now. For to be carnally minded, that is to be fleshy minded, be materialistically minded, be secular, humanistic, and all the things that go along with the contrary approach toward uh, having a relationship with God is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Why? Because the carnal mind is hostile to God. It doesn't want to be influenced by anything that has to do with God because it's too restrictive. It's perceived to be too controlling too manipulative. I want my sovereignty. I want my freedom. I want myself to be free to choose what I want to do, and I don't want anybody telling me how to do it, what days to keep, what to eat, and where to go, you know. And many people today, the world we live in, sadly, is an illustration, a reflection of this mentality. And or at best, they make a God in their own image that's convenient for them that they can build around their lifestyle so that it doesn't impinge upon their behaviors or their habits or their style and consequently uh, live according to their own agnostic belief. And that's what you call an agnostic. You know, they believe in God, but they're not sure what kind of God. And so it's a step away from atheism, <laughs> but nevertheless, it's still far away from where they really need to be and where God would expect them uh, to be. So these are the kinds of environments that we all came out of from one degree to another, from one intensity to another, and we've all varied from those backdrops, from that back framing that we came out of until God tapped us on the shoulder. And then all of a sudden, we started recognizing things seeing things from a different perspective. Something happened, got our attention, stopped us in our tracks. Uh, every one of us have, have a testimony, I'm sure, in this room on what led you to finally make a decision for yourself to be in concert with, for the first time in your life, God, and really take a sincere step toward developing a relationship. John 15 is an interesting 
framing on how some of this begins and starts. John 15 over here, we read it in passing on Passover night, but I want to come back to it a little bit and revisit it because I think it's important that all of us realize something, that when we get the knock, God is reaching out in a fashion that is friendly. Notice what Jesus said around the dinner table that last night. We read it on Passover. I want to go back and revisit it here. Chapter 15, chapter 15, book of John, verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. He's knocking on you in your life to be your friend. But he does come with an invitation on how to dress, and I'm saying that figuratively, how to attend the party. He may even tell you the kind of food that's being expected, and I'm saying figuratively. My point is, there is stipulation. There are requirements and, and expectations. But the premise of his knocking is to be friendly, is to hook up and to develop a relationship with you. Not just a he said, she said. Not just a you will do this, you will like it, and you will smile, and you will never say no, you know. Nothing like that. It's like, I want to be your friend. He even goes on and details this. Notice this here as he continues. Verse 15, he states this. Henceforth, or therefore, because I'm doing this because I want to be friends, therefore, notice this is what he says. He says this, read a letter in my Bible. I call you not a servant. You're not a, a maid. You're not a butler. You're not just one of some of the hired help. You're, 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 you're close. You're close here. He says, For the servant knows not what the Lord does, but I've called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father, I've made known unto you. And then he goes on and he says, You have not chosen me. Whoa. In other words, and whether you're second generation, third generation, fourth generation, whether you have been somewhat influenced by other people in God's church, and, and thank God for that influence, if indeed you've come up on that through the course of your life, the bottom line is, regardless of how you were contacted, and again, all of us have our testimony, regardless of how you were contacted, the fact is, what Jesus is saying is, I chose you. You did not choose me. I could look back on my life, and I could say very easily, there were a couple of times preceding my final picking up the telephone and ans asking who's on the line, that I just let the phone ring <laughs> and said, I don't hear nothing. I'm, I'm continuing to walk this way because I don't want to pick it up. I don't want to know who's calling me. Because I knew that if I became, if I, if I recognized the call, then I have the accountability. 
now I'm beginning to get into the responsible arena. I wanted to be irresponsible. I wanted to be just more free. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be bothered. And so we have this fact that he says, you have not chosen me. He wants to make this clear. I've chosen you and ordained you. I've not only chosen you, I've positioned you to make a choice. You see, in my life, I'm not going to give you the details, but in my life, I came face to face with my wall, as so often many of us do. You know, it's kind of like dating a girl. First you get to know, I'm Bill Watson. Who are you? I'm Margie Hales. <laughs> and then, and then you'll, you start, yeah, you go out and you put your arm around her, you know. And the intimacy begins to develop. Then you hold hands and you walk. And, and you continue on in the relationship. Finally, you get to the point where, where are we going with this? Let's get married. Let's get married. And let's take this relationship forward, you see. And so it is with God. You can study. You can warm up. You can continue to abide in the, what you could say, exposure of the warmth and the water. But the reality of it is, it only goes so far. And there's yet so much more to this friendship that God wants to engage you in. That God wants to have you be able to appreciate and benefit from. And he does offer an awful lot. These holy days are a lot about the fact of what he has to offer because where he wants you to go is into this representation of this begettle phase of this, what you could say, birthing process that we understand to be the church. That's where he wants you. He wants all human beings begotten of his spirit in the church, in the conception phase of the birthing process. And that's what this is all about. This is about being born again, brethren. This is about being impregnated with God's spirit. It's about looking at the resurrection that Jesus Christ in the next few days, because remember, he's in the tomb still. He's still in the tomb, still in the tomb, in the saga that we're in this metaphor with. He's going to be in the tomb for another couple days. But when he comes out, what he is saying is, look, this is for you. It's not only for me, but it is for me. I'm glad I'm going home to my father. E.T. wants to go home for sure. But the bottom line is, I'm here to manifest something for you. That's the message we should be getting. The message of all that these days are about is imbibing in Christ with the unleavened bread to make him metabolized in your being so that you can manifest the behavioral model of his personality with the particulars, the peculiarities of who you are. That's how Christ lives. That's how Christ continues to live. As a matter of fact, brethren, I digress here a little bit. Keep this in mind. I'm not going to go there, but in the epistles of John, 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, 
And my mind just uh, kind of uh, got uh, put into this little thought of how John was really upset at his old age at the time he wrote those epistles because he was getting near death at this time. He was, remember, he was uh, out there on the Isle of Patmos. He wrote the book of Revelation, received all those visions. But then he come back and he saw what was going on. The writings that he wrote, he was well aware of the fact there was a spirit of Antichrist throughout the church at the time, and he labeled it for what it was. And the spirit of Antichrist goes much deeper than just being an unbeliever of Christ and who he was. The spirit of Antichrist goes to the depths of actually admitting to the fact that it's an impossibility for Jesus Christ to continue to live via the Holy Spirit in living human beings and convert those human beings into a new manifestation of him. Now, what I just described to you is a miracle because it's a supernatural, spiritual event. If indeed you participate in a very important underscoring ingredient, very important underscoring ingredient that will make this manifestation work. If you don't participate in this one very important underpinning ingredient, this foundational ingredient, the manifestation of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in you, of which also, don't forget, was a very important item that Jesus introduced the night, remember, around the table about the Holy Spirit. If I don't leave, the Comforter's not going to come. Why was that so important to Jesus? Because Jesus knew. He knew that that was the mechanism, that was the tether, that was the connection, that was the electricity, that, that was the force by which you and I are connected to the Father through him. And remember the Holy Spirit? You read it. We all read it. I'm not going back to the scriptures. You read it. You'll find it there in chapters 14 through 17 that the Holy Spirit emanates from the Father through Christ to you. You have the Spirit of God the Father, brethren, through Christ, who has now made it available to each and every one of us so that we can participate in the supernatural event of converting hostile minds, human beings who are at variance by nature to God, to become compatible with God. But without this very important ingredient, that event, that miracle-working scenario, course in one's life, will not work. It will stall. It will fizzle. It'll, you plug it in, it'll spark and short out without you engaged in this one very important, important ingredient you know what that ingredient is? It's a very important ingredient, basic, fundamental to Christianity. Here's what it is. It is very simple. To be led, to be led by God's Spirit. Now, you may say, yeah? To be led by God's Spirit. Yeah. Now, here's the real question. How can we be assured that we're led by God's Spirit. There are Christian denominations today 
that say that if you don't stand up on your chairs and roll on the floor and can't get up and start screaming and jibber-jabber and all that stuff, that you don't have the Holy Spirit. You've got to go through these kind of contortions and uh, what appears to be malfeasance behaviors and speak in languages you can't understand called tongues to be validated and confirmed that you've got God's Holy Spirit, which in fact is a lot of baloney because that's not how it works. That's not how it works. So I'd like to spend some time today with regard to how can we better assure ourselves of being led by God's Spirit. And over here in Galatians 5, I'd like to go back over there and go up a few scriptures to start out because I think it's very important. No, I'll tell you what. Let me go first, before we go there, keep your finger there. We're going to go right back there. Go to Romans. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, real quick. Let me lay this down. Romans chapter 8, and in verse 14, here's a premise. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Wow. All right. Now we've got something. How can we assure ourselves that we can be sons of God? Because if we can assure ourselves that we're led by God, then we can assure ourselves that we're, son, we're, we're sons of God. We're considered sons of God. So back now over to Galatians 5, real quickly here. And in verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh, Paul says, lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would do. But if you be, here it is again, led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And we understand, I hope we we do by now, that that doesn't mean you're not, that you're forgiven or that you're free from obeying the law. What that means is you're not under the penalty of the law. In the context of the Bible's instruction, We understand the relationship of when Paul uses that terminology, he's talking about what Christ nailed to the staros, to the stake. And what he nailed to the stake was not the Ten Commandments. What he nailed to the stake was not the Old Testament Torah. He didn't nail to the stake the prophets. He didn't nail to the stake the book of uh, Psalms and all the rest of the writings. He did not do that. What he nailed was the death warrant out for your life because of your sins and mine. What is sin? Transgression of law. Simple. We've all broken it. Therefore, the death penalty, the death warrant was on our heads. Christ took it to the staros, nailed it, and consequently we're free now from it, not under it. So, we've just read something here that's pretty interesting. That if you are led by God's Holy Spirit, you are covered. You're free from the death penalty. You are on parole. I guess you could kind of characterize it a little bit like that. But at least you're out walking around. You're free to generate a whole new life and to rebuild your life in a different format, in a different framing with all different circumstances, and hopefully, God willing, a whole different lifestyle that indeed would uh, go ahead and and, um, emulate the 
principles and, of course, the um, signs of Jesus Christ in your life. Now, this word, led, L-E-D, comes from a Greek word, ago, ago. Now, ago is used in a lot of ways, and depending on context, it takes on the coloration of its meaning. And, of course, in uh, these particular cases, we see that it's used to essentially illustrate guidance, a guidepost, a flashlight in a dark world, for all intents and purposes, guidance. I want to take you over here to Matthew. Matthew now, chapter 21. Matthew 21. Matthew 21, through the illustration of a story, I want to propose and hopefully clarify a little bit of how this word ago is used. And in 21 and in verse 2, it says here that, um, well, let's just go in verse 1, chapter 21 and in verse 1. And when they drew near unto Jerusalem and were come to uh, Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then said Jesus to two disciples, Said, and he says this unto them, Go into the village over against uh, you, and straightway you shall find a... Since there's children in the audience, we'll say donkey. <laughs> and that donkey was tied. <laughs> and uh, he says here, And a colt uh, with her, and uh, loose them. Loose. Ago. Not lead. Loose. Loose them. Bring them unto me. And if any man says aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and straight away, uh, straight away, he says here, he will send them. Verse 4 now, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, saying, and again he quotes Isaiah, the Old Testament, again proving this New Testament is built on the Old Testament. I, I always want to bring that back to your mind so that you don't ever forget that that the Old Testament does have application in these New Testament times, and especially in the 21st century, especially now. So he quotes Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9, again illustrating the fulfillment of prophecy and how Christ was a fulfilled prophecy. He says, Tell your daughters of Zion, behold, the king comes unto you, meek and sitting upon a donkey, and the colt and the fowl of a donkey. Verse 6, he says here, And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and ago... The donkey. He brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their clothes and they sat him uh, thereon. And in this particular case, as we see, we have outside individuals guiding these animals. They went and loosed them and then they brought them to Christ. Again, all about guidance, outside forces, the mules and the colt, of course, following being led. Did you see that they were resisting? Were they dragging their feet? Did they stop and go, you know, and force them to, you know, pull and grab them and put an arm lock around them and drag them? No, not at all. Those animals just kind of went right along with them, no problem. And they, those outside forces, brought those animals to them. Now, here's another interesting thing over here in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verse 
And in verse 37, we break into the context, the fame of him, meaning Jesus, went out into every place of the country round about. Verse 38, and he arose out of the synagogue, entered into Simon's house. Now Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, that is Jesus, and it left her, and immediately she arose and started ministering unto them. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with different diseases brought ago. There's the word again, the Greek, brought ago them unto him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, You're the Christ, the Son of God. He rebuked them. He told them and didn't permit them to speak, for they knew that he was the anointed one, the Christos, Christ. So here we find maybe even, and it's a fair statement to say, brethren, that the people that were brought to Jesus for healing didn't even believe Jesus could heal. But you know what? The force that was bringing those sick and demon-possessed, the force that was bringing those people to Jesus knew. And guess what those people did? Did they fight? Did they resist? No. They allowed themselves to be taken over to Jesus. They trusted where they were being guided to. Interesting. Again, realizations of how this plays out in the scenarios of these particular events that are actually going on and how this word is used. Now back to Galatians for a moment. Back to Galatians for a moment. And in chapter 4 this time, chapter 4, We, we have such a tremendous opportunity here that we are all compelled to be a part, uh, parcel to. And here in chapter 4 gives us some motivation, at least I would hope, to understand why we too, like these animals and like these people, should not resist the pulls of outside forces and or the, the influence of the force of the Holy Spirit in you as you begin to become familiar with what the Holy Spirit expects of you. Now, that is predicated on the fact you're doing your duty in studying. Without being familiar with the Holy Spirit and what it expects of you, Case in point, as I've often used this illustration because it's such an extreme that shows how people can get confused about God, you could get convinced on flying airplanes into buildings and killing people as being a favor to God. That's how confused people are about God because they don't study the tenets of the true God. The true God being, of course, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Father of Jesus the Christ. So it's important that we become familiar with the information that identifies the force that is indeed guiding us, and we learn to trust it, as all those illustrations I just pointed out uh, illustrate, and because of this, in this regard. And it says right here in verse 1, Now I say that the heir 
As long as he is a child differs nothing from a servant, though he is Lord of all, but under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. That's, this is the setting now. Verse 3 now, even so we, we Christians, in that likening, in that respect, when we were children were in bondage under the elements of the world or the rudiments of the world. We were enmeshed, again, as I said, in the leaven of the world. We were distracted from the guidance, from the forces, from the instruction of God. Because why? We were, we were myopic in our view of who we were. We had blinders on. It was all about us. And that distraction froze us out from understanding what God wanted us to understand about him. But it goes on here in verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. Jesus was made under the law too. In other words, he was there under that death penalty, under bondage to that law. And it goes on here. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So he was made of a woman made under the law so that he could redeem us who were under the law, that we might receive, this is the compelling motivational item, brethren, of your relationship that hopefully will motivate you to maintain the course so that you could obtain adoption into the family of God. Verse 6, And because you are sons of God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, and again, illustrative of the intimate relationship you should have with God, that you could call Him Dad. You could call Him Daddy. You could call Him Father. You could call Him something that is indeed very, very intimate to you. My grandson calls me Papa. I like that. I like that. My granddaughter calls me Papa. I like that. That's an endearment, a term of endearment. I allow them that because guess what? They're my friends. They're my buddies, you see. Those teach us, brethren, the relationship of God to us. These are the facsimiles, the metaphors. That's why family is such a wonderful institution to reflect how you should have your relationship with God because it's all about family. It's all about Him guiding you and you not resisting. Don't argue. Go with the flow. Just trust. Ooh, that's hard because you're asking me to trust you. But what do we learn? When we're little, our dads or our moms are in the water up to our waist and we're maybe three or four years old and we're about to go ahead and throw them in the water and the child trusts mom and dad that you'll pull them out of the drink, you know. And sometimes they get so, so enthralled with it once they get past the initial fear that they come back to you and say, do it again, do it again. And now no longer the fear is there because they're just total trust. They know you're going to pull them out. That's what this is all about, brethren. 
That's what this is all about. It's about building some of this for the purpose of what he is saying here in regards to the uh, benefit that we are going to receive. He goes on here. He says, uh, Wherefore, you are no more, verse 7, a servant but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christos, through the anointed. How be it then? When you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Talking to these Gentiles who were doing services to Diana. They were doing services and all their rituals to all these pagan gods. And they were. And he says here, in that regard, how be it then when you knew not God, you didn't know that, you didn't know God with a capital G, but you did service unto them which by nature are no gods, small g. But now, I like this, I like this, but now, after that you have known God, oh, or rather are known of God. Wow. You're known of God. You know, brethren, whether or not you're baptized, obviously you're baptized, you are definitely known by God. But those of you who are not baptized are also known of God. You young people are known of God. Why are you known of God? Because you're in contact with individuals who are known of God. And that puts an onus on some of us to recognize the fact that you know what? God's watching you. doesn't matter if you're baptized. God is still watching you. Why? Because he now knows you more intimately due to your connection with those who he knows. You cannot deny that. That connection is very, very clear through the scriptures. And he says here, and he continues on, and he says, or rather are known of God. How can you, and he says this, turn again back to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again. And he's correcting these pagans because apparently they want to go back and observe their days and their months and their times and their years. And then Paul opines the fact in verse 11 that he's afraid of, uh, of them. That is, he's, he's saddened by them, lest he had bestowed upon them labor in vain. In other words, all his sermons, all his educating, all of his counseling has gone under the bus because these people are now looking back and wanting to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to the fast cars and hot women lifestyle again. I say that figuratively speaking, if you know what I'm talking about for the sake of time. Back to the leaven, the ways of leavening in their lives. And Paul's saying, what, what's wrong? Don't do that. Because this audience here in the city of Galatia were Diana worshipers, and they were pagan god worshipers, and he's correcting them in that regard. So it's important we recognize. Notice this over here in 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4 along the same lines. Chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you as though some strange thing happens unto you. Yeah, we're going to go into trials. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're going to have a cakewalk. Just because you're a Christian does not mean now, from this point on, you come up out of the waters of baptism. That's the panacea. It's going to be a walk in the rose garden from that point on. No, 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 no. What you have just done is you have allowed yourself to be loosed like the donkey 
to be guided by outside forces along a trail that you have no idea what it's going to take to get you from where God picked you up and you answered the phone to where he wants to take you in this lifestyle and this lifetime. You see, God knows you better than you know yourself. Yes, he does. He knows you better than you know yourself. I, I, I'm no different than you, and I'm a perfect example of that because believe me, 35, no, about 40, 45 now years, time's flying. That's <laughs> longer than I anticipate. <laughs> I used to say 30, 35, <laughs> I'm getting older. But believe you me, back then, if anybody would have said I'd be doing what I'm doing today, I would have said you're nuts. Forget it, you're way off. No way, Jose, as they would say. Brethren, believe me, God knows you better than you know yourself. Coaches oftentimes know their players better than they know each other or know themselves. I've often used that analogy because I was in sports quite a bit, whether it was wrestling, baseball, and football, and I, I didn't see things that my coach saw, but when he told me to do certain things and I would resist him and fight him, he'd figuratively sometimes, and sometimes literally push me and, and throw me on the mat, depending on how much he wanted me to learn this thing and how frustrated he was to get this habit and style down because he knew it would help me. And guess what? I learned to trust him. And guess what happened then? I benefited by getting better at what I was doing. And I started getting more people out at first base. I started pinning more people. You know, that it... It, it all builds to this relationship. How much do I trust my God in my life? Do I trust him enough to give him my time? Do I trust him enough? Am I willing enough to sacrifice something I want to do that my, in my nature would like me to do rather than what I know I probably should do to sharpen up on something that I need to sharpen up on. Peter says here in uh, chapter 4 and in verse 12 as we continued to, to read here, he says, don't think these uh, fiery trials are strange, but rejoice, verse 13, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Did Christ suffer? We're no different. Christ suffered, and we will suffer. We may not even suffer in this life, but you know what? Some of us may suffer dying. But even in the suffering of death, don't give up. Don't think God has got you, because guess what? We all got to die. <laughs> it's natural. So if you die in a very painful way, and believe you me, I've seen Christians in the course of my ministry. I've been ordained since 1986. And I'll have to admit, I've walked away. I've walked away from hospital rooms saying, God, why are you allowing them to suffer so much? But to their credit, to the encouragement of me, I was the beneficiary of it. They said, don't worry, Bill. I'm okay. You're okay? Wow. That's God's spirit. It's the only thing you can concede to. I've seen people really suffer as they were dying. 
and that yet they held on. The Bible says, look, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, if you be reproached for the name of Christ, I was talking to uh, one of the members last night over at the Brown Derby, and we were talking about terrorist attacks, martyrdom, and hoping that we would be so courageous that we would be able to do something along the lines of a noble stand for truth, you know, in the heat of battle like sometimes you hear people do. And what Peter is saying here is that if indeed you suffer uh, reproach in the name of Christ, happy are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he's evil spoken of, but on your part he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a hater. I'm going to just say hater. Let none of you suffer as a hater or as a thief, an evildoer, a manipulator, a conniver, a ruser, a busybody, or in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Yes, yes, we're under judgment by God. Why? Because God knows us. We're known of God. We're his friend. He's revealed to us a life-saving boatload of information and expects us to bear up and perform and do what is necessary to do the overcoming required and to be the lights that he wants manifested from us. He says here, Yet any man suffer a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their suke, that's not the immortal soul, their soul, their suke, their breath, their life, their consciousness. As, um, who was it, Freud said, your id, your you, what makes you you. Because you know what, brother, we're all spirits. We're already spirits. We're just manifested in these clay jars. You see me for what I am in this body, but you know what? I'm really up here. Here's where I am. I'm between my ears. And once this is embodied into something else, Katie barred the door. Wow, what a day that's going to be. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that day when I'm free from this clay jar and I've got another body because I'm not talking about a disembodied spirit. I'm talking about an embodied spirit that Jesus showed us in his 40-day ministry because it's all about being embodied. And that body is the body that I hope we're all after because that's what this whole program is illustrative of. That's what this whole program is telling us is ours if we're willing to deal with the circumstances we find ourselves surrounded by in the uh, situation that we um, are in. How much time do I have left? 13 minutes. Ouch. Uh, yeah, let me, let me go real quickly here to John 18. John 18, real fast. I just want to uh, give you this. Now, I know this may be somewhat of a 
kind of an off-color uh, comparison of something that I want to illustrate. Bear with me, though, on this in regards to John 18, 20, uh, 8. I'm just going to read that out of uh, the context here. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. It was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should all be defiled. So the point being here, Jesus was led into the judgment hall. Was he screaming, crying, punching, kicking? Was he yelling, saying, I don't deserve this? You guys got the wrong guy. Was he bellyaching, opining, and whining about this? No, not at all. I could give you another scripture, but for the sake of time, I won't. I'll reference it, though, along the same lines. Well, let's just turn there, 19.4, real quick, 19.4. Pilate, therefore, went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And here again, Jesus, again, willingly walks out onto the, the patio there with a crown of thorns on his head and on this purple, uh, scarlet-type robe and allows himself to be mocked publicly and essentially to be told, Hark, the king of the Jews. Did he argue the point? Did he scream and yell, I'm innocent, I'm innocent? Did he make a scene? Did he resist at all? No, as a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 8, we're told the story with Philip approaching the eunuch. Remember that story over here in chapter 8? And you have Philip in this particular case where he comes up on the eunuch and essentially uh, picks up reading the scriptures right where the eunuch uh, was. And he says here in uh, verse, we'll break into the context, uh, verse 30, Philip ran there to him, that is to the eunuch, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, understand you what you're reading. And the eunuch, he says, no, how can I except some man should guide me? Interesting. He desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. So that he got up on the chariot and sat with him. The place of the scripture which he was reading was essentially Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant. We read that at Passover, the suffering servant. That's where he was reading. So Philip turns to those Old Testament scriptures. That's what Philip turned to. There was no New Testament. <laughs> There was no New Testament. So he turns to the Old Testament and opens up to Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb, dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth in this particular case. The point being, he was trusting. Point being, he was faithful. Point being, he was obedient. Point being, he was submissive. Being led by the Spirit, if you want to be truly led by the Spirit, you got to get out of the way. And what I mean by that is your desires, your leaven of what you want, the distractions of the world that cause us to shut God out of our lives have to be controlled and managed and if nothing else, shelved. Because the, the sooner we are able to do that and the better we get at it, the sooner we'll be able to follow the lead of the Spirit unhampered and unhindered. So many scriptures, brethren, 
that we ourselves need to be aware of. And of course, one of them, very importantly, a few pages back here in Acts chapter 5, and it's something that is very critical to the underscore of being led by God's Spirit, is right here in verse 32 of Acts chapter 5, where we read very clearly, We are His witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to them that obey Him. If you've got God's Holy Spirit and you refuse to obey Him, the Spirit is not necessarily taken from you, but you are grieving it. Every time you go against the law as a baptized member and even a non-baptized member, don't think for a minute because God knows you through those you're connected with who know him. You too grieve God and consequently are able to... Oh, we got a little mouse here. (laughs) see we got distracted (laughs) here he comes coming around by Ensign here (laughs) little intermission (laughs) we'll have to do some cutting on this We'll take a mouse break, then we'll conclude. (laughs) He's a little guy. I have to admit, this has never happened to me before. (laughs) He's out of the fridge? All right, so we'll pick up here. Before I was so rudely interrupted by that little guy. (laughs) A church mouse. (laughs) He's a church mouse. (laughs) I think he was moved by the spirit, too. (laughs) But at any rate, brethren, this scripture becomes very fundamental to being led by God's spirit. And that is, of course, obeying God and in this particular case as well, so that the love of God can be expressed. And the love of God that can be and should be expressed as located over here, and as we begin to conclude this over in 1 John chapter 5, I'd like to bring your attention to that, because it's important we understand what the love of God is all about. 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5 and in verse 3, again breaking into the context here, for this is the love of God. You want to know what the love of God is? You want to know what we're trying to achieve as far as the objective is concerned. For the love of God, that's what we want to try to achieve. Well, the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. As a matter of fact, what's grievous is not keeping His commandments. That's when you grieve the Holy Spirit if indeed, again, as I've said before, you are begotten of God, and or even if you're not baptized, if you do something that is not within the framework of God's law, also grieve God. Because, again, let me emphasize, God knows you. He knows you through those who do, in fact, have a relationship with God. So I hope we understand that in all due respect to this, 
We need to expect to be blessed by God, expect to be known of God, expect to be led to repentance by God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, read it. For those of you who are not baptized but are lingering in the truth on the outer perimeter, are kind of coming and going, so to speak, with interest and, and curiosity and digging deep and finding information, keep in mind what God's intent and objective in your relationship as he's knocking on your doors, he knocked on my door some 40 years ago, is first steps first. He wants you to repent, ultimately get baptized and accept Jesus as the way. Young people, as well as older people who are not baptized, that's the objective. For those of us who are baptized, he wants us to continue to work on trust. He wants us to continue to work on allowing God to go ahead and continue to work with us, to be submissive, and, of course, to uh, follow that particular lead that he is opening doors for us to recognize. I want to end with a little story. The story that I want to end with is a story about a donkey and a farmer. The donkey was out in the uh, farm, fell into an old well, old well. Actually, the farmer was intending to fill the well with dirt to uh, solidify the ground. Unfortunately, the donkey found the hole first and fell into the hole, fell into the old well. Donkey was way down there, I don't know, 20 feet or so. It was way, way down there. The farmer came up, looked at the donkey, and he said, Oh, man, I'm going to get him out of there now. So he went ahead and knocked on the doors of his neighbors, got a couple of guys out of the uh, neighborhood from other farms around the area. They all came with shovels because the farmer conceded to the fact he's going to bury the donkey alive simply because the well's no good. And the donkey, well, he's old, and, you know, he is still somewhat useful, but frankly, you know, I, I think it's time to, you know, be easier just to bury him. So they start, everybody shoveling dirt into the donkey. And the donkey's down there, and they were maybe five, ten minutes in, and all of a sudden the farmer started seeing a pattern. The donkey would shake the dirt off and step up. Wow, the farmer says, what's going on here? And the neighbor said, did you notice that? Yeah, watch this. Shake it off. Step up. So guess what? Those guys continued to throw dirt in a pattern, in a pace, because they had the best interests of the donkey at heart. And they gave the donkey the dirt as he could handle it. <laughs> and the donkey handled it. I could use another word, but the donkey will be fine. <laughs> and the donkey handled the dirt and kept shaking it off and kept stepping up. Shovel after shovel. They had to slow down sometimes. Then they could speed up sometimes. Then they had to slow down sometimes. But that donkey kept shaking it off and stepping up until finally... He got to the point, that old donkey, where he was able to step up and exceed the rim of the well and follow the lead of that farmer back to the barn. Brethren, follow the lead of our God. He knows, he knows where he's taking you and how much dirt 
you can handle.